being an advocate for the LGBTQ plus community is, has been one of the, the best parts of my career and having a platform that I know can make a positive impact has been one of the most worthwhile parts of being a professional soccer player. Welcome back to the Outfield Podcast, episode 21. Again, sorry for the delays in getting these shows out, but the delay is very much worth it for today's guest, one of the guests I have wanted on since I've started the show about a year and a half ago, former dogged midfielder for the Washington Spirit, activist, broadcaster, amazing person, author, author of Raising Tomorrow's Champions, a book you can now buy anywhere where books are sold. I sound like a really terrible news anchor right now, but I don't care because I get to introduce <laughs> Joanna Lohman to this podcast. Hello, Joanna. Welcome. Hey, Matt, you know, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, and I apologize for being so elusive over the past year, but I wanted to wait until Raising Tomorrow's Champions was out, so we had some really juicy stuff to discuss. I mean, I, I've been doing some of the excerpts of it. It's very juicy. I can't wait to talk about that. I'll just start a little bit. Uh, the second show I did, did a show with Rory Moyette, obviously. You know who he is. Of course, works for DC United. Great, amazing person. And then he mentioned you on that show, and I'm like, oh, I got to get her on. And then, then you were, we were talking, and it was like you were writing this book, and obviously books take a long time to write, especially something as you've written here. So it took a while, and here we are. So I, I paid it forward. It just took a year and a half. <laughs> you know what? It's, I think the timing is perfect, and I'm so glad that Rory name-dropped me. He's such a great friend of mine, and no better time to discuss this beautiful book that we just released and to catch up on life. Mm -hmm. And it's no better time, I think, to honor somebody who's nicknamed a Rainbow Warrior. I mean, you have to earn that title. I mean, lots of people are great at what they do in this community, but to earn the title Rainbow Warrior, you've got to go above and beyond, and you very much go above and beyond. Well, that's, that's very flattering. I think I gave myself the nickname the Rainbow Warrior because I wasn't necessarily the greatest soccer player in the world, so I needed somewhat of an alter ego to take up some time and energy, but I really appreciate you know all your compliments. I think being an advocate for the LGBTQ plus community is has been one of the the best parts of my career. And having a platform that I know can make a positive impact has been one of the most worthwhile parts of being a professional soccer player. And it's so fascinating when we talk about the journey of not just you know you personally and this this book covers this so well but the journey of what it means to be an out athlete what it means to be an out athlete particularly in u.s women's soccer which is so fascinating and we're going to get to all of that i I just have to first ask because you're done writing a book and it's now out that is a grueling process i know somebody family member works in publishing and you can and you know how grueling that this, this particular thing to do is what does it feel like now that you're talking about the book now that it's done other than going through rewrites and edits? <laughs> it's, it takes an, a ton of hard work to write a book, but you know, as professional athletes, we're very much used to that hard work and we take a lot of pleasure in it, but I have to fully admit that it's much nicer talking about the finished product than it is reading through every single line in the book to make sure we didn't spell anything wrong. So it's been such a joy over this past week to really discuss the topics that we bring up in Raising Tomorrow's Champions. And, you know, I'm super proud of the first three chapters really addressing social justice issues like gender, sexual orientation, and race, and having these important discussions and conversations around those types of issues because they are they are challenges that kids face today, and we really wanted to address that head-on, and we really wanted to pull back the curtain on what it's like to strive to be a professional athlete and play sports, because all of these issues are applicable, especially in today's age. Um, we really wanted to be authentic and honest when, when talking about what life entails now for kids. There's so many elements of that, but I'll focus on you for a second because when you're doing preparation for these interviews, you learn a lot about people you didn't otherwise know. And obviously, you're from the DMV, which is great. Love the DMV, University of Maryland alum, Silver Spring, obviously. So that's down the street from Here's the turtle. Mm -hmm. Well, you went to Penn State. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. I'm not a Penn State fan, but that's neither here nor there. It's so funny how, you know, it's you and Colin Martin. The DMV has produced multiple, uh, multiple important out soccer players. I, I find that interesting. Was it about the DMV that made that happen? You know what? It's, that's a great question. I think 
when you grow up around a big city, a big city like Washington, D.C., where the government is based, you are exposed to a lot of progressive ideas. But to be honest, I didn't come out until I was 21 years old. I was a senior in college. I was engaged to a man. So I didn't particularly know that my life was going to take that turn, especially when I was when I was a young kid. Um, I've been joking this week that <clears throat> I grew up on a street called Loxley Lane in Sherwood Forest, and my pool name was Robin Hood. So everyone's been joking that I grew up in a Disney movie. And, you know, it makes me laugh because my, my childhood was incredibly wholesome. I have nothing but amazing things to say about where I grew up and who I grew up with, and also my parents that you read a lot about in the book. But it took a lot of self-reflection and leaving the D.C. area for me to really discover who I was. And like I said, that didn't come until I was the age of 21. But going back to your question about the DMV, you know, I feel I feel very safe being a, a gay woman here in Washington, D.C. There's very progressive ideas. Uh, it's very LGBTQ friendly. There's rainbow flags everywhere. We have an amazing gay pride. So I feel like I'm right where I need to be. Mm-hmm. And Loxley Lane, that's that's a funny coincidence now, considering who the football coach at Maryland is. <laughs> that's so true. It's very funny. Does he live on Loxley Lane? That would be too appropriate, I guess. You know what? I don't know, but that would be pretty amazing if he did. That would be hilarious. I, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe Nick Saban lives on a street named after him in Tuscaloosa, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if Mike Loxley's earned that yet, but I mean, he, he's making Maryland football something that doesn't make me sad every week, so... I guess I have to talk about it. <laughs> One of the stories that I found out about you when I was doing research, and I, and I want to talk about this when we talk about you growing up, and it's such an interesting time for women's soccer, is when the 99 women's team that won the, goal, uh, won the World Cup uh, against China at the Rose Bowl, when they went to the White House to be honored by Bill Clinton, they brought youth soccer players there, and you were one of them. Yeah, I was one of the lucky, the lucky few, I would say, that got to experience their trip to the White House after they won that epic 99 women's world cup in the penalty kick shootout and i you know i really credit that day in the moment that i saw them walking off the bus to the second that i knew i what i wanted to do with my life i think i always loved the game of soccer i played it because i was incredibly passionate about it and it was something that just really spoke to me but when i was able to see with my own eyes these role models these you know really professional soccer players for their country it really crystallized in my mind that one day I could be doing that and it really added an extra layer of motivation for me going into college at Penn State that you know this is what I'm striving for it's fascinating because I mean I was too young to know what the, that that team meant just as not just from a soccer perspective but just an overall cultural phenomenon that they were and you were perfect age for that because you're just about to head to college and women's soccer at that point, obviously it goes on a completely different trajectory after that. So when you look back on that, because we all look back on that, on that world cup, it's kind of seminal and in, in not just women's soccer, but I think women's sports in general, in many ways, that's a seminal moment. What do you take from that now going back and looking at that team and considering everything that they inspired afterwards? And again, generations of young women who are directly inspired by what they did. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're spot on about that. That was a game-changing moment of the Women's World Cup team in 99, not just their victory, but the way that they sold out stadiums and the way that they truly bet on themselves. Because I know that they really fought to play in the bigger stadiums. They believed that they could sell out. And it was through all of the hustle and hard work of the players themselves, you know, doing every single appearance, going on every radio show, going to club practices. I'm talking about all over the country for months. They sold their own tickets, and that's, that's humbling. But you saw the sold-out stadium at the Rose Bowl in the final against China, and when Brandy Chastain hit that winning PK and ripped off her shirt, it was the game changed um, from that moment on. And that was when the first Women's Professional League was launched, and that was really the launching point of – when women's soccer hit the global stage. And I, I say that because and I don't want to take away from what the players before them did. You know, the first ever women's national team was in 1985. These players played in hand-me-down men's jerseys, and they really paved the way for the 99ers. And the 99ers have paved the way for the 19ers, right, for winning the World Cup in 2019. 
And it's just been an incredible evolution of the team throughout its history. And their shared DNA, their shared core values within this team that has never left. The original cheer that they chanted, Usa, 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 Ah, is still one that they chant today. So it's been it's been really amazing for me in the process of writing this book and doing these interviews all the way back to 1985 to personally experience and see the evolution of the team and see this DNA carried on. It, um, you know, we like to call it one of the most exclusive sororities because only 241 individuals have ever had a single cap for the women's national team. So it's an exclusive club. It's incredibly hard to get into. It's harder than winning the lottery. Um, but it's a group of women who completely change society on who, and who are so influential both on and off the field. It's amazing. I, and I'm, again, maybe not the person to ask about this, but I, perhaps there is no more influential group of athletes in recent history of, of sports anywhere than them. Just not just, again, for women's sports, uh, for women's soccer, but women's sports in general, you know, like, yeah, 100% agree with that. It, it's ama- It's amazing to think about that. And considering how big the women's team is now, they are something in unto themselves. I mean, we, we I mean, some of this is a fault of the men missing the World Cup, but also because the women are just so dominant and they go about their business so amazingly and how everybody around the world realized that they had to step their game up, you know, and that's still happening. But I think one of the other things that you learn from this and you and you went through it because you were part of that generation that came up right after them and they had the first women's league and those first couple women's leagues really struggled to get off the ground. It took three times to get a women's league that is now where the NWSL is and, and you played in all of them. You had to go around the world to play and all of this is happening while you're discovering who you are at a very different time for what it meant to be an out athlete. So, so talk a little first about just the journey from playing in college, exploring your sexuality to then you know, going through these ups and downs of trying to get professional women's soccer leagues off the ground so you could play as a professional athlete and not have to do side hustles, which you had to do. Yeah, no, the side hustle was very real. And my senior year of college, I was expecting to go top five in the draft for the USA, which was the original league. And my life, you know, in my brain was set out. I'd be a top five draft pick. I would get selected by whatever team. I would play professionally for years and years, and my career would be made. And I was walking through the quad at Penn State one day in the spring, and one of the men's coaches came up to me and said, did you hear that the league folded? And I just I, – I could see my life shattering in front of me. It was just, what do I do now, right? I really thought that my career path was being a top-five draft pick, and now there is no league to even speak of. So that's when I really had to – self-reflect and pack my bags and really try to follow my dreams wherever it would take me, you know, multiple countries, different teams around the world, playing semi-professional, absolutely hustling as a commercial real estate broker for many years, you know, and it's just, it was that hustle though, that truly builds your resiliency and truly builds your character. So now I feel like I am a very well-worn human being because of all the adversity I had to face in my career and the second league folding, and then finally the third league now that is sustainable, I had the pleasure of playing in for, you know, what was it, from 2013 until I retired in 2019. And, you know, sometimes I look back and think, wow, you know, I wish I had a better timing when it came to my career. I wish I was coming out now and I could play in a sustainable league where I could make a living and I didn't have to have the side hustle. But I take a lot of pride in feeling like I was one of the players that helped to blaze the trail for the, the current iteration of the league. And like I said, I, I feel like I'm a very resilient and strong human being because of all the adversity that I faced and all the ways that I was able to overcome it. Well, the good news about having to do the side hustle of real estate means uh, maybe you get an HGTV show out of it. <laughs> I didn't get that. But yeah, no, I, that would have been really cool. Well, down the line, I mean, considering what you're doing now, cause you're almost everywhere. It's it's quite possible that they'll they'll ring you up because what because who's hosting an HGTV show now? Uh, I mean, well, that wasn't an HGTV show, but if they gave Vanilla Ice a show and nobody gave a crap about his <laughs> his real estate in Palm Beach, they could give you one. I mean, there you forget. go, the Rainbow War. Forget, go. Yeah, it's easy easy to title, <laughs> easy to sell. It would take no time at all. I don't know why they aren't doing that. I'd watch. 
Um, I've watched far too much HDTV, but usually that happens when I fall asleep. But again, neither here nor there. You made a point about that I wanted to talk to you about is because maybe in some ways you were born just a few years too soon. Because if you were born four or five years later, you'd probably still be playing in NWSL right now. Uh, considering now the league is fairly stable and it has TV deals, it's got coverage, it's got very dedicated fans, it has a very good following base and support now for sponsors. Uh, I mean, you, you talked about it there. It's like, I don't think you feel unlucky considering you, you did do a lot of hard work that set the trail for those who came after you. But you, are you, do you feel like sometimes when you see what NWSL is, when you see who's buying into the league, because amazing people are buying into this league now, and this is happening every day, you feel like, man, I missed a trick. <laughs> Matt, I'd be lying if I said I didn't. No, for sure. I think I think it would have been really special to play in a league that had such a great foundation and has the investors that they do now. I mean, just look at the L.A. team and their group of investors. I mean, how special is it to play for a group of women like that? And I'm not even that. Just look at who just bought into the Chicago Red Stars, too. I know. I know. Chicago Red Stars, also the Washington Spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, you have Chelsea Clinton, Jenna Bush, and just some incredible names. And it it gives me such great hope, not just for women's soccer, but for women's sports in general, that now it's legitimately cool to own a women's professional sports team. Back when I played, it wasn't cool to go to women's professional soccer games. You know, we would we would get, you know, every other person and their dog, but you wouldn't necessarily have, you know, gobs of people coming on the weekends because it was the cool thing to do in your city. So I just, I've really enjoyed the evolution of the game. Um, and there are moments where I think, man, I wish I could be playing now. Of course, I'd be silly not to say that. But at the same time, I did the best with what I, the, the hand that I was dealt. And I'm, I'm proud of myself for that. And I'm proud that I get to sit back now and watch this league grow and watch the players just get better and better. Um, and they're just such talented players now coming out of college. So it's, a, it's an exciting time for the league. And I think it's only going to grow from here. I think when what's exciting about it is, is, is it feels stable now, the league. Like yeah, it doesn't agreed. feel like yeah. the biggest question coming into the season is, are they going to survive it? You know, there wasn't any yeah. question like, oh, is the what's going to what's the pandemic going to do to NWSL? There wasn't a question about that now. I think that's yeah. a huge. And again, it took three tries to get a stable league off the ground. And it's very hard to do that. And I'm seeing that now with with women's hockey, the sport that is going through kind of, you know, the soccer track just 20 years later. Like that's a big issue for that. Right. You know, and they're equally amazing athletes, equally amazing stories. And I, I kind of think in. And of course, you're you're very much involved in all women's sports, not just soccer, of course. And and then what I why I watch women is the hockey and, and some of the things that I say. I think, boy, that 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 sport's going to get there. It's just going to be a bumpy ride to get there because I remember seeing what women's soccer went through. And I think the first year or two, when the league can go and say, "Hey, we're not worried about surviving. You know, we're we're worried about moving on." That's when the leagues now it started to really take off. And that and that's a hard point to get to. It's a hard place to get to and imagine how much better the athletes are for that. Because back when, you know, I was playing and like you said, you had to worry about, will I get a paycheck tomorrow? Will the league be around tomorrow? You can't be at your best. Right. And if your paychecks are so minimal that you're having the side hustle, you can't be your best athlete self either. Right. Because you're focusing so much on outside issues of how am I going to pay the bills that, you can't do that extra training. You can't spend all day at the training facility watching video and you don't have all the resources that the players do now. So it's not only exciting for the league itself, but it's so exciting for the athletes because they really get to explore their true potential and reach the best that they can because there's so many resources at their disposal, but that previous players didn't have. And the other cool thing is there's competition now. Like they can go to play in, you know, for Leon and or PSG, or they can go play in England now. There's competition, and that makes the sport better. And it means NWSL has to step up its game. It is not automatically the place where everybody has to go to play. And we've seen that, yeah. and that, and that makes everybody yeah. better. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. It also gives players leverage. You know, it was very difficult when I played to really have leverage over the ownership, over the club, because you just felt like you were sometimes a pawn in the game. 
And now there are so many options of where to play. There are, there's a lot more money in the game. So you could go to Europe, you could go overseas and that's going to make you a better player, right? It's challenging yourself, pushing outside of your comfort zone. That's going to really cause you to grow and develop. And so you're coming back to the NWSL when you eventually do as a, as a better player, as a more well, well-rounded person. And so you're adding tremendous value to our league. So I think having that outside pressure on the NWSL is good for all of us. And you're right. It's forcing the owners in the league to really step up their game and to offer some pretty prime time contracts. And again, it also helps that you've got the sponsorships, there's the interest, there's a TV deal that puts you on CBS. It's, it's a lot of good things for that league. And as much as I, we could turn this into an MWSL podcast, there is something else we do need to talk about. And your personal journey, and again, I didn't know this until I started doing the research to prep for this episode. Uh, I didn't realize that you were engaged to a man and you didn't come out until you were 21. That's it's a pretty yeah. incredible. When you think about you now and think about how I was introduced right. to you and the way I've seen you, I didn't know that. It, that that's and it, again, it adds another layer to your own personal journey. Right, it's pretty shocking, honestly. I, it's funny because when I give my book to a lot of my clients that I train, they look at old pictures of me, and there's this shock that I didn't have a mohawk when I was one year old. Right, like it, they think <laughs> yeah, I should come out of the womb. Thing. It's like you, you made that your style, and it's ubiquitous now. <laughs> And they're just absolutely floored by the fact that I didn't know that I was gay until I was 21 and I was engaged to a man. So, it's, you know, you always want to keep people on their toes. So this is one of the ways I can keep people on their toes. But, no, in all honesty, I, it was – I always say I got hit by the gay stick, right, and I came flying out of the closet because I just felt like at the age of 21 when I had my first experience with a woman, I truly knew who I wanted to be after that. And it took years of, of growth and took years of self-reflection and – just really understanding who I was to fully become who we call the rainbow warrior now. Um, you know, I was definitely a work in progress, but it feels good to feel content in my own skin. You know, I don't think that that many people can honestly say that. And it takes a lot of hard work to get to that place, but I feel, I feel like I, I'm really my authentic self and I can help other people now find that because it's been a journey of mine throughout my whole life. It has been, and there's also the journey of being out in sports, because when you came out, I mean, it's a very, I've, I've talked about this, obviously, and we all know it, but it's a, it was such a different world then. I mean, and for you, you're, I, I, again, my history is not where it needs to be on this, but you were one of the first to do it, and it's not like the, the, the gay players in these women's teams weren't there, they always were, but they weren't able to be out for a multitude of reasons. And so you were kind of one of the first that pushed that to the point where now, I mean, being out, of, like, it's not just that they're out of the closet. They are fully embracing it publicly in a way that you could have never imagined when you were just starting to go through your journey. Yeah, no, absolutely true. And I think I was one of the first players to ever publicly come out and live openly. And it was just something that came naturally to me. I almost like didn't know any other way. And it just came with the comfort in my own skin that I didn't necessarily care what other people thought. And also too, you know, not to sell myself short, but again, I wasn't, I didn't have the name of an Abby Wambeck or a Megan Rapinoe. I didn't, I didn't have that much to risk personally when it came to sponsorships, if I did come out publicly. So I, I felt safe to, to be who I was. And it has definitely gotten better. I mean, you think back to when Billie Jean King lost all of her sponsorships when she came out. And back in those days, and, you know, famously the camera panning away from Brian Ascurry when she, go, when she went to go kiss her girlfriend after making the game-winning save in the 99 Women's World Cup to where we are now, where athletes are on the cover of Allure magazine, you know, Megan Rapinoe and Sue Bird, such a power couple all over the media, so proud, so open. And I think that's another way that the U.S. Women's National Team has really shaped culture and really pushed for more acceptance is because they're so successful on the field and they're just themselves, right? And they're so dominant, like you said, and they just, they're just a beautiful team. Um, and they're all so encouraged to be their unique selves that it's starting to open people, people's eyes to how powerful that can be. There, there are a couple layers to this that I want to mention, and I might be paraphrasing this wrong, and I apologize if I am. Uh, Kim McCauley, who used to write 
um, now where he's working for Angel City. I think it was right around the time of the World Cup final in 2019. I think she put it this way. And again, I could be wrong and correct me if I am. Like the 2017, there were notable struggles with how out some of those players could be. And I think that was a tension in that team. And that team didn't achieve what it could have achieved. In 2011, there was like that wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Some of us might not like men. I think it's how she put it. I, I forget. Um, and then you have 2015. It was clear that a lot of that many players were out. And then 2019, you get the full on embrace. You know, you have Megan right. Rapinoe doing what Megan Rapinoe does. Like that's an evolution that takes place over time. And when you when you chart it that way, I mean, it, it's it's amazing again, like how much can change in 12 years, and how again, it's not necessarily that the number has changed. But it's how they're able right. to embrace themselves. And it is not, as people say, it's not linear to get from point A to point B. But when, when right. she put it that way, I was fascinated. Because, again, it was not something I had really thought about. And it was the, it, I had only fully experienced the 2011, 15, and 2019 Women's World Cups. So I don't remember much before that. And I didn't really understand my own sexuality until, you know, into 2015 in that regard. And so... You know, even for me, it's like you, you go in, it's like, okay, they're not hiding it. And then in 2019, I was already out. But you go like, this is a full-on embrace, and you're going to deal with it whether you like it or not. It, it takes something to go from that. And, and I think that's, again, it's a testament to some of those amazing athletes who bore the brunt and then got to bear the rewards by being their full, authentic selves because they went to the World Cup and dump-trucked everybody. Yeah, and, you know, you had Megan Rapinoe's epic quote, you can't win without the gays, baby. That's science right there. And you I never would have used that as a meme multiple times, probably. <laughs> yeah, and back in, you know, 1999, in our research, we found that the women's national team was, was marketed in a very restricted way, right? They were, quote, unquote, the girls next door. So there wasn't much room for sexual orientation outside of being straight. And I know a lot of those players felt forced into boxes and they weren't comfortable outright saying that they were gay, but they existed. And I think you see this growth over the years of the national team pushing that comfort level and players coming out and Abby kissing, you know, um, her ex-wife after the, it was the World Cup and, you know, on the cover of magazines. And, and that's, you can see the difference between Bryce Gurry, the camera panning away from her kissing her girlfriend to Abby Wambach um, kissing her ex-wife. And it's just, you can, you can see it visually, the growth that we've made. And now the current iteration of the team feels very embraced to be themselves, but at the same time, is still fighting a lot of resistance. I, I'm sure you saw that when the women were celebrating after the game and, and drinking beers and what any men's team would do, they got a lot of hate and got a lot of resistance to that. And so you're still really fighting these restrictive norms that we put on women that you should be quiet. You should sit in the corner. You shouldn't be loud. And this team is just really pushing back on all of those issues. And it's just incredible to see because the world follows and it has a ripple effect on so many young girls it has a ripple effect on other professional women's sports you see the wnba pushing for more because of u.s women's national team's collective bargaining agreement negotiations so it it, it has a vast effect and i am so proud to see how they carry themselves through all the pressure that surrounds them well another thing that I, maybe there is a line to be drawn here. You saw the recent statistics that uh, more people are identifying in our community than ever before, and a lot of them are women. It's not men. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think I think about it, and I think about well, some of that again, maybe it's it's YouTube and TikTok culture, but I'm I'm a sports person. I will always link it to you know this because I mean these 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 girls are seeing people like yourself, but obviously Megan Rapinoe and many others. I mean, two women's national team players just adopted a child together. I mean, these things right. didn't happen before. And now I think they see it. They now understand, hey, we, we can be ourselves. And that's what the youngest generation is able to be now. It's just so different culturally. And maybe, maybe sports doesn't play a huge role, but it certainly feels like it does. I think sports plays the biggest role, to be quite honest. And athletes are naturally looked up to, right? People aspire to be professional athletes. So to see someone who looks like you and sounds like you and 
has the same gender, race, religion as you, it, it's inspiring for a lot of these young kids. And it gives so many options for their identity. You know, one of the reasons I felt like I didn't discover I was gay until I was 21 is that it never occurred to me. It was never told to me that having a different identity was really an option. It was very binary. You were either a girl or a boy, and then you were straight. And so I never, ever questioned it. I never even knew there was another option. And then you get to college and you have these feelings and you see people who are different from you and you really want to explore that. That's, that's something of interest. And so I'm, I'm happy that these kids now are seeing role models who are proud to be themselves authentically and honestly. And so they have so many more options for their own identity and, Therefore, we, a lot of us feel like we fit in now as opposed to feeling like we're alone and we're not uh, what society tells us to be. I, I have to ask you now about the book and the way you explain like how you get to be the, the athletes you want to be in and that journey and how, and how sexuality, of course, and all of this plays a huge role. Um, and so many stories about coming out are still very difficult even to this day because you don't know where you are and you don't know your family situation so if you're talking to some of these young girls and they're playing soccer for you I mean it helps that you're in the DMV and the DMV is the DMV but in general like how do you talk to these these young girls or even even guys because I would still send you know guys who are questioning their sexuality or their identity I'd still send them to you because I mean they see you they'll go like oh this is cool right so how would you talk to them about, you know, this journey that you're going on and how to, you know, how to balance that with the journey of trying to ascend to being an athlete, even if it's even if they don't get to the highest, highest level, they go to college, you know, they can still play at, right. a, at a decent level. So how do you how, what is your advice for them, you know, and, and putting these things together and having that evolution to be a, a smoother evolution than people that came before? Right. Yeah, no, I think, you know, Matt, both of us know that there are so many pressures in this world that really try to force us into restrictive boxes. And my advice for people is as best as you can try to push back against that pressure and try to ask yourself honest questions and to lean into your feelings and figure out who you really are, because there's so much told to us through societal messages, images that we see that oftentimes we can be persuaded to be someone that we're not, or we feel like we have to be someone that we're not. And it's hard. It's, you have to be really brave to be yourself because many times you don't feel like you do fit in or you're not cool. And my message to kids is that being yourself is cool. And it may not feel like it at first when you're young, but as you get older, you just start to get more comfortable in that space. You get more comfortable in your own skin and there's really nothing better than feeling comfortable in your own skin because you're able to walk into a room with confidence. You're able to speak looking into someone's eyes and your chest is up and you feel, you feel much more content. And I think contentment, contentment is a very difficult thing to find these days. So I would really encourage kids to be true to themselves and listen to themselves and uh, trust that the journey that they're on is the right one and that they're strong enough to make the important decisions. Mm -hmm. And for you, I mean, you're one of the people that they look up to and you have people talking to you all the time saying, Hey, your story has made me feel comfortable in my own skin. And I've talked to a lot of people, not just on this podcast, but in general, that what is that feeling like? Cause it, it is a great feeling, but it's a responsibility too. But for you, what does that feel like? to be somebody that is cited so often as an example of what it means to be out in this space in particular. I feel just so lucky that people look up to me in that, in that way. Sometimes I can't believe this is actually the life that I get to lead. And I say that because I didn't necessarily do anything directly to be this person. I think I just lived an honest and authentic life and naturally people looked up to me, but I feel very lucky and I feel incredibly privileged to feel safe. And I realized that feeling safe and going to work every day and getting to be your true self is an absolute privilege because I've had the perspective of traveling around the world and it's still illegal to be gay in a lot of these countries. You'll still get kicked off your national team if you come out as being gay. So I think it's, 
that privilege is a responsibility, like you said, for me to really be a voice for those who are forced into silence and to help someone who comes behind me feel more comfortable in their own skin. So it's, it's an amazing, amazing feeling to know I can have a positive impact on someone's life in such a, in such a deep way. And I take that responsibility very seriously. And there's also the elements of when they see you, if they see you, you know, around them at like age four or five, like I remember when my sister started playing soccer, you know, that normalizes this instantly. There's no questioning it if you see it. And it's just, oh, it's second nature, you know, and the fact that you do all of these things, leave alone the fact that you coach soccer still, you know, I, I think that's also a very important element to this, which is just latent normalization by just existing in many ways. Yeah. And that's something that, again, it, it, it feels like it's always, it's always been there, but it hasn't been. And so something like you doing what you're doing or all of these people just existing in their spaces, you know, it normalizes it in a way that you clearly didn't have. And even in many ways, people that came of age around when I did didn't have. I didn't feel like I had anyone really in my life growing up that I knew was gay. And I think that played a part in how long it took me to realize that I had feelings for women. Because I just, I didn't, it wasn't normalized, like you said. I didn't realize it was even an option. And now when I'm coaching kids anywhere from the age of six, you know, into college, <clears throat> even older than that, I speak about my partner all the time. Like it's, I speak about her like, any heterosexual couple would speak about their partner. And like you said, it, it makes it a moot point, right? It's just, it's another, another aspect of life that they get to know. They get to see me smiling and laughing and really enjoying my life as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. And I think for them, it's, it makes them realize that being different is okay and that you can still be different and have this amazing, beautiful life and have that dream to love and be loved. And so it's, I think for the kids that I, that I coach, it's really important for them to see it in front of their own eyes and to see that I treat it no differently than any other couple would. So let's talk a little bit about the book and some of the things about the book before we start to wrap this up. Uh, you interview so many people. Of course, Carly Lloyd is in there, South Jersey's own Carly Lloyd. Love the DMV, but I'm a South Jersey kid, and Carly Lloyd is from where I'm from, and that's great. You know, hey, South Jersey's own Carly Lloyd. I remember making that joke during the 2015 World Cup final when she scores from halfway. I'm like, hey, that my, my area put that out there. You have to respect right? that. It's great. That's some good company there. I mean, there, the, the town she was raised in is not a town that I think really has produced much, but I'll give Del Rand credit. They gave, us, they gave the world Carly Lloyd, and that is good enough for me. <laughs> Because they haven't given the world much else. Uh, so, uh, when you think about the book and the stories, was there any stories in there that surprised you that you ended up telling? You know what? I think just the level of honesty and the rawness in the stories that we have in the book. You know, something that pops into my brain is speaking to Shannon Box, and Shannon Box is talking to us about how she battled an eating disorder at the end of high school and early in college because she felt the need to be perfect. And not to mention her sister is also an Olympic athlete, gold medalist, right? So mm -hmm. it's these stories of struggle. And not that I didn't think that these players struggled, but just that commonality that every human being struggles, even if you make it to the absolute highest level. You know, we interviewed Abby Wambach on the four-year anniversary of her sobriety. So little things like that just really humanize these players and makes you realize that they're not much different than me and at the same time their ability to overcome and rise above these challenges to give another example we interviewed lauren cheney lauren cheney struggled with her brain tumor when she was pregnant with her child and hearing that profound story and how she was able to have the baby early remove the brain tumor it's just life and death struggles that we all go through and the path to the top like you said is not linear at all and every single one of these players had somehow overcome a litany of challenges that most people, I would say, wouldn't be able to do to get to that level. And I think that's what it takes to separate the good from the great is just that, that last percentage point that really pushes you over the tipping point that you're willing 
to put your through put yourself through a lot of of shit. You know, you you put yourself through a lot of hard work, tears, crying, pain, blood, sweat to get to that level because you have that extreme amount of determination. So I think I just I walked away from writing that book with so much of a deeper level of respect for what these players went through but even more how they were able to overcome and still reach the top do you have a favorite story in all this is it is it the most disney movie story of them all or is it just one that you like wow that that one i didn't expect i didn't see that one coming you know what there's so many stories in this book it's hard to choose one but i think you know hearing the story of how mia ham was discovered from joe ellsmore who is now an executive at nike and how he truly believed in mia ham nike had not invested anything in women's sports they weren't even in soccer and how mia ham set the stage for what is now women's sports in general at nike so hearing those types of stories back um, back throughout the history and then you know stories from Abby Wambach you know getting injured on the field prior to the olympics and breaking her leg against brazil in the last game before going to the Olympics and calling Lauren Cheney from the ambulance and saying, Lauren, Lauren, get ready. Like you're next. It's like the stories of leadership that these women exemplified throughout the history of the national team just is so jaw dropping and seeing all the different paths each of them took to get to where they are today. It's just, it shows that there isn't one magical answer and it shows that every single player really had a hard road to get there. And so it's just like hearing all of these stories from each of them personally and how vulnerable they were and telling these stories, I think was, was really cool. And then, you know, talking to the parents, I really could identify with chapter six, which is the parenting chapter and hearing Yale Averbush's mother, Gloria Averbush talk about how much she struggled in her daughter's soccer career, how Yale didn't make a team when she was around 14 years old and, KL calls Gloria and Gloria hangs up the phone and she just starts sobbing. You know, I, you can see the investment from these parents in their children's careers and how personal it feels to them. So it's really difficult to take that step back and to let your daughter absorb all that pain and failure. But it's absolutely something parents have to do in their child's journey. So it's just, it was cool to get um, such a, a wide ranging, wide ranging feedback from both parents players, coaches, mentors, and to get a holistic view of, of really what it takes to, to build a champion. Mm -hmm. And I also think when we see stories of parents in sports, too often we see the, the horror stories, you know, right. the, yeah. you know the over-aggressive parent who's yelling at the ref. I mean, we've all seen that, right? And, and that, I think it's important to talk about just what it is to, to do this because there is no one right way to be a parent of somebody in this situation. Right. How do you get your children to the top? Because in some cases it yeah. is incredibly difficult. And there are so many examples of what not to do. You know, I don't right. think there's enough examples out there of what to do. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, you don't hear about the, the quiet parent on the sideline who's just supporting their child um, from a distance, right? And that's really how parents need to be. And... <laughs> a great story comes to mind of, of Mallory Pugh telling her dad to shut up in the middle of a game because he wouldn't stop yelling what he Sounds thought. Sounds like was something greatest. she would do though. Yeah. You know. <laughs> right. Parents are very well intentioned, but I think the best thing they can do is, is almost get out of the way. And it's difficult for parents to hear that. And I think this book will, will help to encourage the parent to take a step back and have that perspective that it's not, it's a marathon. Parenting is a marathon. And like you said, there's no one way to do it. So it's really trusting your child can handle it and giving them the opportunity to experience what sport gives to you. And there's, there's so many benefits, right? Like every day that you go to practice, you might win, you may lose, and it really doesn't matter. And you have the opportunity to win, to lose, to be a part of a team, to fall over, to pick yourself back up again, to, you know, problem solve and so many scenarios that'll make you successful off the field and parents have to let their children absorb all of that. And if they, hard to, it's hard to also live vicariously through your, you know, not live vicariously yeah. through your children. Right. Like you're, if, as a parent, your dream it may not be your child's dream and to let go and to let your children determine where they want to go in life and not 
not for you to guide and push the entire time. So again, it's very well intentioned from the parenting perspective, but um, I think there's a lot of good lessons in this book that tell parents to, to take a step back and really let go of those reins that they hold so tightly. Couple more before we let you go. I uh, mean, we could do this for three hours, and I would still have questions <laughs> to ask. But I, I have to ask you about. Um, there, it would be impossible if I didn't ask about being out in men's sports, which is still obviously something that is very, very hard to be in not all sports, particularly uh, in this case soccer. I mean, we have we've mentioned examples, and I've interviewed a couple of them on this show. But I mean, what's the advice that you would give to them? Because obviously, as we know, they're very different worlds. Being out in, in women's sports is so different than being out in men's sports for a variety of reasons, which we've gone into and we'll go into in future shows. But what would you say to them? Because it's one thing when you're looking up to these amazing female athletes, Megan Rapino. but if you're a guy, there's something a little bit different about looking up to Megan Rapino, and we all should because she is the sun and the star, and the, the, we all revolve around her, of course. She commands that kind of gravity, but you don't have that sort of out male athlete there are great out male athletes but there isn't one quite like her or even one quite like you in many ways so what what is it for you that you would say to to guys who are coming up and are starting to figure this out that they might not have had because they don't have the examples to follow i would say that it's very difficult to reach your potential and to be your best self if you're living in the closet and having known a lot of gay male athletes um, professional ones that came out post-career, they so often say that they were never able to be as good as they wanted to be. And it was purely because they couldn't be themselves. They couldn't be themselves in the locker room. Uh, they couldn't be themselves on the field. I'll never forget a former NFL player who's out and proud now saying that every time he sacked the quarterback and the crowd cheered, he was scared that they could have been jeering him because they found out he was gay. And, you know, that's just a lot of that's a lot of weight to carry around. It's a lot of fear to carry around and letting go of that and letting that off your shoulders is what's going to allow you to really live your best life. So as, as best you can, you know, that may be more internally um, to begin with, like with your own teammates before you really come out publicly, try to be as open as you can, if you feel safe doing so. And if not, maybe reconsider, um, what team you play for or what sport you're playing. Um, obviously don't quit sport, but, you know, try to find an environment that, that where you feel safe, that you can be yourself because then you're really going to thrive. Uh, I'm thinking about the sport of hockey right now where all of that is actually not possible. And it makes me very angry every time I hear that because that environment just doesn't exist in certain places and it sucks. And yeah, you talk to people true. like that where it sucks and it just, it annoys, the, it annoys me. It, it doesn't make me so mad as much now as it just annoys me that these, that these places that should exist, that could easily exist with a little effort, do not exist. There are so many parts of your life that we could get into. You're an activist, you're in movies, you've written a book, you've played professional soccer. But there is one thing that I am contractually obligated to mention considering my line of work, and that is uh, you were a broadcaster, color commentator, briefly, <laughs> for DC United. Now, I have to ask about this because I am a play-by-play -play commentator. Working with you obviously would be amazing because there aren't many broadcast booths I could think of that had two out people in them in sports, which would be amazing. Uh, how did you enjoy working uh, color, doing color for DC United games? I really enjoyed it. I think it's, I have a much deeper respect for commentators. So for you, Matt, I think it's a very difficult job. And I'm so used to just watching a game on my couch and, you know, yelling at the television that was offsides or that was – a fantastic pass and, and look at that ball and that type of thing. But to be able to do it while you are broadcasting a game is a very difficult thing to do. And to always feel like you're coming up with something inventive um, for the audience to hear is a challenging thing. But at the same time, I love being able to watch the game from a more analytical perspective, right. And getting to point out these things that I wouldn't necessarily be able to say to myself as I walked on my couch on a Sunday. So it was, it was an amazing opportunity that DC United gave to me, and I'm, I feel very lucky that I was able to broadcast next to Dave Johnson, who's an absolute legend mm. in the DC area. Yes, yeah, shout out to Dave Johnson, by the way, of yeah. all he's gone through, too. If you don't know Dave Johnson, the original TV voice of, D of DC United, he's still doing it. Also, the radio voice of the, of the Wizards. Uh, he's going through health issues, and uh, a great, great broadcaster, one of those just people that everybody knows in Washington. So it's like nobody has a bad word to say about him. 
and he does his thing. No. And it's, it's amazing to think, like, again, man who started from that level at soccer. And I also think about, for you, I mean, like, Lori Lindsay's doing a ton of color right now. And great, right. great analyst. Yep. Love to work with her someday. So there, there is a path for you if you want to go. I mean, you have about 10,000 other things you can do. And maybe this is not the one, but I would, I would appreciate it if you were involved in it. It would be great. Oh, I appreciate that, Matt. I don't, I don't know if that's really where my career is going to go. And, but if it does, I'm going to take that confidence boost from you. And Good. I'm gonna I appreciate walk. that. I hope that that confidence <laughs> boost can be used to get me jobs and calling games because that hasn't really worked. Um, <laughs> but that's not, again, neither here nor there. As we wrap this up, of course, you can read the book, Reading Tomorrow's Champions. You can get it wherever you find books, which I don't even know where you find books these days. Amazon, I guess. I don't know. Barnes Amazon and, Google, and our still. website, rtcsoccer.com is our website. And I was then about to say Barnes and Noble. I think they still exist. I hope they still exist. Uh, it's not on Barnes and Noble. It's right now. It's on Amazon, and it's on our website, RTC Soccer. One day it might be available. I hope it's available uh, more places, of course, because that means it's selling well. Uh, what's the biggest takeaway from all that you've gone through uh, in recent times, and and what do you think you're going to take away from that to go on to whatever challenge you get to next? I think that the takeaway for me in this book is that this is a way for me to pay it forward. Right, soccer has given me so much throughout my life. And I've been so lucky to really achieve my dream that this is a way that I can give back to the future generations of soccer players and parents to, for, to really raise happy, healthy kids. Because that's ultimately, ultimately the goal is to raise kids that are self-actualized and who are, have confidence and who are happy and healthy. And I'm just I'm glad that I'm contributing to, to, that, to that life work. Mm-hmm. And you have contributed a lot to many other people beyond that, too. Um, just, just being yourself has done a lot for countless people. I know you know that. And, again, people being out like you and doing what you do, it is not the easiest path to follow. And it always comes with its own pitfalls. But you've done it so well, you've made it easier for those to follow. We've plugged your book, but there is more to you than your book. Plug where else people could find you. Yeah, I'm, I'm on Instagram, Joanna Loman 15 Twitter is at Joanna Loman. I'm on Facebook. Uh, my website is JoannaLoman.com. So please check me out and hit me up because I always love some good um, soccer community conversations. So I'm, I'm all ears. Uh, it's, we're, what, a month away from NWSL starting? I know. I really hope so. Let's, let's hope so. I'm thinking so. And, and, and I did not make a joke about the Maryland Soccerplex until the very end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> I I was I had to I had to resist because it's it's something you again DMV things you know Boyd's it's Boyd Boyd's Maryland it's one of those things that I didn't know about and then I got to the DMV and then I learned a lot about it very quickly. There you go. It is a great place. It is well it's it's a lot of soccer's happened there. It's a spiritual home of U.S. soccer. Forget RFK. Yeah. Forget the raccoons. Boyd's Soccerplex. That's <laughs> that's the place. Yeah. Thank you very well, much, so much, Joanna. It was so great to have you on. Yeah, no, thanks so much for the great conversation.